Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. You know, I was uh, usually on Sunday mornings, I, I get up and I, <clears throat> I try to get early. Either I review my notes or, you know, I'll read through the scripture a few times or whatever, and I'll pray. And this morning, I just wanted to pray. And one of the things I was praying about is like, Lord, just a sense of, man, this is, I'm handling your word. And it's and it's because it says, you know, throughout this, what the Spirit says under the church is, it's your word. And, man, I'm such a frail vessel and, and Lord, I, I want to rightly divide your word, and I, and I don't want to add to your word or take away from your word. I don't want to be like Moses who misrepresented God, you know, to the people. He acted, he said, you know, he pretended like, or he didn't pretend, but he gave the impression that God was angry with them, and God wasn't angry with them. And so just that heaviness of, Lord, Lord, I'm, I'm handling your word, and, and just help me to handle it right. And so I asked the Lord just to fill me with his spirit as I share these letters um, because these are a little bit heavier letters, these these next two. Um, last week, by the way, we're in Revelation, so that's where we're going to be at this morning. Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 29. Um, if you need a Bible and you'd like to follow along, I always encourage that. Uh, there's Bibles in the back, just raise your hand, we'll get you one. Um, and if you're a visitor here, we're glad you're here this morning. Thank, thankful that you're here this morning. So... Revelation chapter 2, just want to give you a little bit of a refresher on uh, this if you weren't here last week, but uh, this is uh, the last book in the New Testament. John the Apostle was on the island of Patmos. He was banished to the island there, um, and uh, there... On the Lord's day, the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord appeared to him, uh, gave him a revelation of Jesus Christ. And uh, in the first couple chapters, uh, Jesus is basically telling John to dictate seven letters to seven churches in Asia Minor. And, uh, and so John does that, and that's what we've been looking at uh, last week, and we're going to continue looking at today. So that's... Um, one of the things. And then just as a refresher, I want to just give you an outline for the book of Revelation. If you're never familiar with that, it's really easy. It's given it to us in verse 19 of chapter 1. Jesus tells John to write the things which you have seen. And in chapter 1, John had saw the revelation of Jesus Christ. He saw him in his glory. And that's, that's the first part. Write those things which you have seen. And then he says, write the things which are. And the things which are, are the seven letters to seven churches, Revelations 2, uh, chapter 2 and verse 3. It deals with a church, these were actual churches that were in existence in John's day, but they're representative churches all down through the centuries, including to our day. And then write the things which will take place after this, which is chapters 4 through 22. After what? After the church age. So that's really the outline of the book of, of, of Revelation. It's very easy to follow. The things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. Also of interest, the number seven shows up a lot in the book of Revelation, but even the seven letters themselves can be broken up into seven categories. Uh, 
Uh, the first is an address. Each of the churches, it's to the angel of the church and then whatever church it is. And then there's, a, for each, after the salutation, there's a revelation of Jesus, which is unique. It's taken from chapter 1, and it is specific for each church, and it deals with how Jesus is speaking, the message that he gives to each church. So then there's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Then there's Christ's knowledge of their spiritual condition. He knows what's going on. In chapter 1, Jesus is standing in the midst of the lampstands. The lampstands are the seven churches. He's walking there. He's looking at the lampstands. He's paying attention to them. Jesus today is paying attention to our church. He knows our church. He knows the heart of our church. He knows what's taking place within our church. He's involved with our church. And so there's Christ's knowledge of their spiritual condition. And then he has a unique message for each church. A unique message. And then it's followed by either a promise or a threat. Now the promise is on the, the two churches that are not, uh, there's two churches that have no negative comments. The rest of the churches do. And so in that case, it's not necessarily a promise, but more of a threat if they don't, if they don't repent. And then finally, or not finally, but the next thing, there's an admonition for the individual to heed what the Spirit says. Because although these are letters to the, seven, to the angels of the seven churches, they not only apply to the angels or the pastors or the messengers of the church, but they also apply to the churches in that day, and it also applies to you and I as well. So if you're here this morning, I pray that the Holy Spirit, you hear what the Spirit says to you this morning. And then finally, there's a promise to the individual overcomer within those churches. So that's kind of the breakdown of these, of these letters. Um, last week, we looked at the church of Ephesus and the church of Smyrna. The church of Ephesus was a church that was doctrinally right on. I mean, they had their doctrine down pat. They were, they, 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 their theology was just totally correct. Uh, orthodox, you might say. They were just right on, on the money. And yet... They had left their first love, their love of Jesus Christ. We looked at that yesterday or last week. And then there was the next letter was to the letter to the church of Smyrna. And the church of Smyrna was a persecuted church. And, uh, and so, <laughs> excuse me. <laughs> By the way, if you have a phone and you want to turn it off, now would be a good time to do that. <laughs> wow, yeah. I, uh, I remember dropping it there and going, I'll get it after worship, and I forgot. All right, well, continuing on here. Um, so this morning, we're going to be looking at the church of Pergamos and the church of Thyatira. So I'm going to go ahead and read the letter to the church of Pergamos, which is, uh, begins in, in verse 12, if you want to follow along with me. And the angel of the church in Pergamos write... These things, says he who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, 
or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So the church of Pergamos, it's also known as Pergamum. It was uh, <clears throat> not along the coast. A lot of these letters are to these, a lot of these churches were on the coast. This one was more central into the province of, of Asia. And Pergamon was uh, famous for a, a few different things. First of all, it had the greatest library in the ancient world. It had over 200,000 volumes there. In fact, the word Pergamina is where we get the word parchment. It comes from Pergamus. It's derived from Pergamum. Um, Mark Antony gave to Cleopatra uh, this, this, uh, the library, basically, and she transferred it. And there you see them. We have, I don't know how we got pictures of them, but we did. And uh, they transferred, or she transferred the library to Alexandria, Egypt, and of course, that the library of, of Alexandria is a very famous library. Well, it originated at Pergamum. Not only that, but Pergamum also boasted the largest altar in the world to Zeus. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. And this is just a model of it. You can see the width of the stairs. There's horses on top. That, that's a model of, and that's just an altar. That's not a temple. That was just an altar to Zeus. So it was an amazing thing there. They had many other temples. They had a temple built to Caesar Augustus because they worshipped the cult of the emperor there in uh, Pergamum as well. And then they had a temple of Dionysius, which is also known as Bacchus, who was the god, little g, of wine, theater, and revelry. Um, And not only that, but they had the temple of Asclepius, um, and uh, that actually uh, was uh, an interesting thing, especially for those of you that are involved in the medical uh, medical field, because uh, basically they had ritualistic healing centers, and uh, the snake wrapped around the pole is actually comes from the the, the Greek god Asclepius. I'm going to pronounce it wrong, but um, that guy Asclepius, whatever. Um, what you would do is if you were sick, you would go to these healing centers and uh, you, would, you would sleep in, and they had these rooms where you would sleep. Uh, they were filled with non-venomous snakes that would slither all over you. And whatever dream you had, you would tell the, 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 the prophet or prophetess there about your dream and then they would interpret it and then they would prescribe a healing for you of some sort. Some temples even used sacred dogs to lick the wounds of the sick. So uh, kind of bizarre, but that's, that was one of the things that they worshipped there in Pergamum. What about the Church of Pergamum? What we'll find out is that the Church of Pergamum was an undiscerning and a compromised church. What about Christ's knowledge of their spiritual condition? Verse 13, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you uh, where Satan dwells. So the church of Pergamos, the believers, the Christians there, they were holding fast 
to the name of Jesus. Even in the midst of all this plurality of temples and things that were worshipped, they were holding fast to Jesus' name. They did not deny their faith. And there was a time when they were actually persecuted in Pergamum. And uh, he mentions a guy by the name of Antipas. Now, we don't know anything more about Antipas. His name, uh, he's called a faithful martyr. And a martyr basically is a witness. That's basically what a martyr is. Now, there are some traditions that are not in the Bible about this Antipas. According to church tradition, he was the bishop of the church of Pergamum. And uh, the priests of Ascalupas, Ascalupias or whatever, they burned him to death in a brazen bowl, a large bowl. Basically, they heated it up. He was put in that and, and burned to death uh, during the reign of Domitian, the emperor. So is this the person? Is he the actual bishop of, of Pergamum? We don't really know. What's interesting in his name, Antipas, means against all. And, and the church was known for compromising, uh, and his name means standing against, you could put it, you could translate it, standing against compromise. So important for us today that we stand against compromise. Compromise is so subtle that occurs in our lives, and so we need to stand against compromise as well. He says, I know your works where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells. Uh, what is he referring to? Well, could he be referring to the largest altar in, in, the, in the world there, to the altar to the Greek god Zeus? It could be. It's possible. I think more than likely is what Alexander Hislop in his, his book Two, Bob, Two Babylons wrote. He said that Pergamus had inherited the religious mantle of ancient Babylon. Babylon had the that was the first world religion uh, that was the basically the first uh, religion opposed to God basically and it was a it was a an ancient religion and so what what Alexander Hislop said was that Pergamus had inherited that that mantle of, of the religious mantle of ancient Babylon and in fact Pergamus had become the greatest center of pagan religion in the world at that time. So in the midst of a very pagan city, with all these temples all over the place, Jesus commends them for remaining faithful and not denying his name. However, there was still a problem with the church of Pergamos. Verse 14, But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Balaam, he's a character from the Old Testament. In fact, as we go through the book of Revelation, there's a lot of uh, alluding back to Old Testament things. So it's, it's good to have a good understanding of Old Testament scripture because it helps you when you start studying the book of Revelation. Well, who was Balaam? He wasn't an Israelite. He was the son of Beor from Mesopotamia. He was a soothsayer or a diviner. He had a knowledge of the God of Israel, and he had a relationship of some to some degree with God. But he also had this reputation of being able to bless and to curse people. Now, he wasn't a prophet of the Lord, but we'll see if you look in the life of, 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 ba of Balaam, God did speak through him, prophesied through Balaam. Well, Balaam was hired by Balak, uh, king of Moab, to prophesy against the children of Israel. 
But the thing is, God would never allow the children of Israel to be cursed. And that was an error on Balaam's part. In fact, the Bible talks about the error of Balaam in Jude chapter 1, verse 11. Balaam made the error of presuming that God would curse the children of Israel. God would not curse the children. You know, for you and I that have a relationship with Jesus Christ, we can't be cursed. You know, if, if there were like Satan worshipers all around here that were cursing Calvary Chapel, Rochester, we cannot be cursed. God would not allow that. That's a, that's a, that's a comfort and a blessing. Well, God would not allow the children of Israel to be cursed. Then there's the way of Balaam that's described in 2 Peter 2, verse 15. It says in 2 Peter 2, 15, that he loved the wages of unrighteousness, that he sold his prophetic gift for money. And so what that really speaks of is compromise in the sense of being willing to compromise for the sake of financial benefit. None of us ever do that, right? None of us ever cheat on our taxes or fail to report something because, you know, the, the, the economic cost of doing that. Well, that, that was a compromise, the way of Balaam, willing to compromise for the sake of financial benefit. And then we have here in chapter 2 the doctrine of Balaam, and that's Revelation uh, 2, verse 14, where he taught Balak how to corrupt the children of Israel. See, God wouldn't allow Balaam to curse the children of Israel. And Balak was really frustrated. So uh, Balaam said, well, I tell you, yeah, I, I can't, I, every time I try to say anything, all that comes out is blessings. I can't but bless the children of Israel. God won't let me. But here's what you can do. Bring your most beautiful Moabite women. Have them dress up really fine. Have them parade themselves and there in front of the children, the men of the children of Israel. And... Uh, They'll fall in love with them. They'll want to intermarry with them. They'll, and that's how you'll get in there, through corruption, through corrupting the children of Israel. And that's exactly what took place. The Moabite women came to the men of, of Israel, the children of Israel, and uh, they were idol worshipers. And as they got connected, as these guys got you know, involved with these Moabite women, they, they got involved with the worship of their false gods that they worshipped. And some of their worship was sexual immorality. It was that was the practice of their of their worship, and so um, sexual immorality with a Moabite woman, idol worship, and what it really speaks of is compromise through ungodly relationships. Now we're we're in the world, but we're not to be part of the world, right? It's okay to have unsafe friends, and it's okay to be involved. In fact, most of us have unsafe either friends or family members, and it's not like we're going to be secluded from them. But we're not to be compromised in our relationship with God through them. And that can happen. Sometimes, sometimes family or ungodly friends can have more of an influence on us than the Lord God himself. And that's a, that's a danger. And so the doctrine of Balaam was basically teaching Balak how to corrupt the children of Israel through ungodly relationships. Verse 15, Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. We mentioned that last week, uh, the Nicolaitans in the church of Ephesus. Their name, we don't know exactly who they are. There's some different theories, but the name means victorious over the people or victory over the people. Um, and, and really what it, I think what it represents is those who claimed divine apostolic authority over the church. They were false apostles. And they claimed authority and they were, they were teaching, their teachings led to sexual immorality and idolatry. 
And the church of Ephesus was commended because they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. They hated what Jesus hates. And I tell you, it's always a good thing to hate what Jesus hates and to love what Jesus loves. And so the church of Ephesus, they were commended that. But the church of Pergamos here was so full of compromise. They were faithful to the Lord, but they also allowed those into the church that held the doctrine or the teachings of the Nicolaitans. In other words, they didn't hate what Jesus hates. Now, one thing that I've noticed, maybe you've noticed as well, all churches, to some degree, reflect the secular culture that they're in. To some degree, you know, we're, we look like Western culture because we're, you know, we're in Western culture. The church has a Western culture feel to it. And, and, and you know, that's how, we, that's how you and I worship. You go to another country where the culture's different and their worship is a little bit different. You know, their, their songs or how they dress or their, the things that they do in their worship is a little bit different um, because you reflect the culture that you're in. And uh, in some cases, it's not a good thing. Uh, materialism can be something that's reflected. You know, it's in the culture around us, but it can re- be reflected in the homes that we buy, the possessions that we have, our transportation, our clothing, etc. You know, Christians are not immune from affluenza. You know what affluenza is? Here's a de- it's, it's an actual definition. It's an actual condition. I don't know if you guys ever treated that at Mayo Clinic, but it's an actual condition. It's called a painful contagious, socially transmitted condition of overload, debt, anxiety, and waste resulting from the dogged pursuit of more. I think I've caught affluenza once or twice, you know. It's, it's, it's contagious, it's, and, and, and it's, it's dangerous, and it's that dogged pursuit for more. And depending on where you're at in the country, it's interesting, you know, um, we have friends and family on the left coast, which is California, and uh, uh, the, one of the left coasts, I guess, the other left coast. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. So we got married in Duluth, Minnesota, and when I got out of the military, we, we went back to California and uh, raised our family, got involved in church, made some good friends there. And it was interesting. At that time, we were just, you know, newly married, young family, um, just starting to kind of get on your feet. We were struggling financially. We had friends that were pretty much in the same social economic situation we were. We were all struggling families, raising kids, loving the Lord, going to church, serving the Lord, being involved in ministry and stuff. And we kind of grew together. And then years later, we moved our family back here to Minnesota. We've gone back many times and visited. And one of the things that we've noticed, a lot of the friends of ours, I won't say all of them, and I won't, you know, but there's friends that we've noticed that they were struggling like we were struggling back then, and they were so involved in ministry, and they loved the Lord and stuff. And it's not like they're not loving the Lord now, but what we've noticed being removed from that environment and coming back to it and visiting, we've noticed that their zeal for the Lord, there's just there's something different there. And they're, they're, they're doing much more well you know, financially, and things are just, it seems like their focus is just a little bit different. Um, and uh, so, you know, all churches, we do reflect the secular culture that we're in. It can involve our entertainment and, to some extent, our values as well. Well, the church of Pergamos, they were faithful to the Lord in some aspects, but they had tolerated 
and allowed into their church body those who held these false teachings uh, of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. And that resulted in the practice of sexual immorality and idolatry. So they were compromised in that sense. And so what's Christ's message to the church of Pergamos? It's, it's very simple. He says, repent. Just repent. What does that mean? A repent is a change of heart and direction. It means I, I, I recognize that what I'm doing is sin and I, I repent of it. I, I, I'm gonna, I want to turn from it. And it's actually physically turning from those sins, turning from that life. To turn around is basically uh, what you could think of it. That's what repentance is. And so Christ gives a threat to this church of his coming. He says, repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. The sword of my mouth. You know, when you think about that and you go through the scriptures, it's really, it's a picture of the word of God, the Bible. And it's interesting that that's exactly how Jesus reveals himself to the church of Pergamos. He who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, that word sword there, it's not a short one for precision strokes, for, for div- rightly dividing, you know, the word and stuff. It's, it, it's not that sword. This is a sword for mass casualty, for lopping off heads and limbs. And the picture that's, that's given to us is, is one of meeting out judgment, executing. This is the long, uh, the sharp two-edged sword. And notice that it's two-edged. It cuts both ways. You know, a one-edged, a one-edged sword... I can handle it with my hands because as long as I keep my hands on the right end of it, right the right side, that's that's dull. I can I can handle it. I you know, um, but when it's two edged, man, I, I two edged, I can't even touch that sword because it'll cut me as much as it'll cut the next person. And you know, sometimes when we're reading, you know, God's word, and and I'm I'm guilty of doing that, or or maybe you're hearing like even this morning, you're hearing something, you go, wow, I wish so and so was in church right now to hear this about compromise, because, man, they're compromised, you know. Sometimes we take God's word and we go, wow, it applies to somebody else, you know. But, you know, it's a two-edged sword. It applies to me as well. What about me? And so the admonition to the individual, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, because it applies to all of us. And then there's a promise to the individual, verse 17. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. The hidden manna, what is that? Well, the manna, you recall, was how the Lord God provided uh, food for the children of Israel as they were traveling through the wilderness. And uh, it was an amazing thing. Uh, Like, I don't know, two to three million people were fed daily by God. That manna that provided, it was like train loads of food that God provided for the children of Israel all through there. Well, what they were told once they got into the promised land, they were told to take some of that manna and to place it in a jar and to place the jar in the Ark of the Covenant within the Holy of Holies. It was a memorial to remind them of how God provided for them in their wilderness wanderings. So the hidden manna is, it's referring to that manna that was placed in the Ark of the Covenant within the Holy of Holies. And then the white stone engraved with a new name that only the possessor of it knows the meanings. There's three possibilities of what Jesus is referring to. Well, there's probably many possibilities, but there's three that I think could quite possibly, you know, 
picture it very well. One is the Urim and the Thummim. Those were the stones, they were called lights and perfections. Those were the stones that the priest would carry. They would ask God what his will was, and then the priest actually would would pull out one of these stones, a white or a black stone, basically, that would tell what was God's will, basically. And those stones, the Urim and the Thummim, they were kept in the ephod of the priest as he entered into the Holy of Holies, again, into the Holy of Holies. That's one possibility. Another possibility, in ancient courts... When there was a verdict declared, there was two stones, a black stone that meant if they pulled out the black stone, that means you were condemned. That's where we get the term blackballed from, by the way. Or there was a white stone, which you were declared innocent. So it could be picturing that. And then finally, there's another thing, and that's called the tessera. And in Roman culture, they had a regular, a rectangular block, excuse me, of, of stone. It was made of ivory, actually. And it had words or symbols engraved on it. And they actually used it in Roman culture as a ticket or a voucher. In other words, if you wanted to go to the theater to watch, you know, the, 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 the gladiators or something, and you had your little voucher, your little ticket, that was your entry pass into, uh, into the events. It was a means of identification, so it could be any one of these things, this white stone with a, a new name written on it, which no one knows except him who receives it. But I think what's pictured is what's important. Those who do not compromise their faith and their walk are going to be allowed into entrance into heaven, into the Holy of Holies, into God's presence. I think that's the picture here, not being compromised. Let's continue here with the church of Thyatira, verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things, says the Son of God, who has has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants, to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will get to each one of you according to your works." Now I say to you and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works unto the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What about the the city of Thyatira? It was not a politically important city. It was not a a, a religiously important city as uh, Pergamum was, but it was a very, it was a commercial city. It was a city of trade. In fact, in the New Testament, Lydia she was the seller of purple that came to faith and, you know, she was the first believer there. She, in Asia, she was the first believer. She came from Thyatira. She had a business there. She was a seller of purple from Thyatira. Well, what was interesting about Thyatira was for all these different 
people, these, these different trades that were represented there, each one had what was known as a trade guild. And it, you could kind of think of it like a union. The thing with these trade guilds, though, is that they were closely connected to the religion of the city. Um, they actually, each trade guild had their own deity that they worshipped. And uh, they believed that their sacrifices and feasts to their deity is what allowed their particular trade to prosper. And so you were involved in a trade, well, then you were expected to be involved in the trade guild as well. Well, what was taking place in those trade guilds, they would, they would offer, offer sacrifices to idols. There was sexual immorality. Pagan feasts were going on there. Uh, lots of drunkenness. All kinds of, 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 of immoral practices were going on there. And as a result... You know, trade guilds, they were really opposed to Christianity. Because here you have this new believer, right? Maybe he was a seller of purple like Lydia. He comes to faith in the Lord, and now it's like, man, I, I can't be involved in those practices of the trade guild. Well, they go, well, if you're not offering to the God of, the trade, of our trade, we're not going to prosper. You're actually harming all of us. And so you can imagine there was a, quite a bit of pressure on the new believers there in Thyatira. Now, Thyatira. now, we don't have something like that today, do we? I mean, you know, your trade unions, if you're a tradesman, you don't, you know, you don't go worship to some idol there in the trades, right? We have nothing like that. Well, actually, I think we do. What about the Christmas work party? <laughs> hey, it's coming up for most of us, right? And believe me, I'm not sitting in an ivory tower. I used, I've worked in, 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 uh, in the community, and, and I, you know, you're, you're a born-again believer, and they say, hey, we got a Christmas work party. And you know typically what takes place at the Christmas work parties. Um, and uh, a lot of drinking. And if you don't go, you're saying, well, you know, you're more holier than us. You know, you consider yourself more holy. Or, you know, you're not being a team player. I remember hearing that before. You know, you, you really got to participate because you want to be a team player. Well, you know what happens when your inhibitions are lowered. You wear suits with ties and white shirts, and you walk around and do the dance with no <laughs> I thought it was a funny picture anyways okay <laughs> all right but so you know we kind of can identify with that right you come to faith in the Lord and now now there's things that you're expected to do with everyone else your co-workers and it's like you know what I can't do that anymore and they're watching you and I to see it what are we going to do are we going to compromise or are we going to stand by our convictions because, you know, the thing is, in this world, there's not too many people that stand by their convictions anymore. A lot of people are compromised. And it's a temptation. It's a very, there's a lot of pressure to compromise. And so, unfortunately, that was a problem there. What's also interesting about Thyatira was that there's archaeological evidence that there was a great amalgamation of different races. Thyatira could have been called the melting pot of the region there. They had, they've discovered Latin inscriptions and which indicated uh, a considerable influx of Italian immigrants. In some Greek ins inscriptions, there's also Latin words are introduced into them. Uh, names of individuals that have been discovered in Thyatira have both, some of them have both Latin and Greek names. Like, for example, Titus Antonius Alpheus Aragnotus which is, I guess, a, a combination of Greek and, and Latin names, Julia Severina Stratonisis. So, so there's some things that they found. They, they've discovered that there was an influx of this. And a result of this amalgamation, you know, each, each race would bring their own pagan religions and practices uh, with them, and it was all blended together in the culture at Thyatira. 
uh, religious observances in, in Thyatira was kind of like going to old country buffet. You know, we had a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I like this, I like that, I don't like that, but I'll have some of this. That's kind of the way the religious practices were in the city of Thyatira. And as I mentioned earlier, all churches to some degree reflect the culture that they're in, right? Well, the blending of different religions unfortunately affected the church of Thyatira. You recall what I shared. Ephesus was a church that was doctrinally pure, but they, were, they had left their first love. The church of Pergamos was a tolerant church. Well, if I were to describe the church of Thyatira, I would call them an affirming church or an indulging church. What's interesting, if you follow the degression of those churches, the next church, we won't get to it today, but the next church is a spiritually dead church. They have a name for being alive, but they're dead. What's Christ's knowledge of their spiritual condition? Verse 19, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. You know, if that letter to to Thyatira stopped right there, verse 19, that would be the church we want to be a member of, right? They, they, they're not missing love like Ephesus. They're, they're recognized for their love. They're recognized for their faithfulness. Man, they're patient. And they're growing in missions and outreach. They're doing more and more things. They're, they're, they're not stagnant, man. They're growing. Like, that's the church I want to go to. I want to be a part of a church like that. But he doesn't end there. Verse 20. Nevertheless, or but... I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Jezebel. Uh, by the way, I, I've, I've discovered that her name actually is pronounced Iedzebel. Iedzebel. Which I thought was kind of interesting because I always say Jezebel. But was this an actual woman named Jezebel? If it was, her parents were probably not very kind. <laughs> you know, I mean, that name is pretty much ruined in history, right? I mean, how many kids do you know? You go, that's a cute little girl. What's her name? Oh, Jezebel. You know, I mean, people don't call their name their kids Adolf anymore, you know, or, or, or Judas or something. Certain names have been destroyed. They're just ruined, you know, because of the reputation. Well, so it may or may not be an actual woman named Jezebel. But it's interesting Jesus is speaking to the, to, the, to the angel of the church, right, of Thyatira. He says, you allow the woman Jezebel to seek, to teach, and to seduce my children. And that word allow is significant. I think it's, it tells us something. That word allow means to permit, not to hinder, to leave in charge. They didn't, they didn't hinder this false prophetess from teaching and seducing people. They didn't hinder her. In fact, they actually put her in charge. She, she was involved when, with ministry. See, Pergamos had false apostles in their midst, in their, in their fellowship. But Thyatira went a step further. They had false, a, a false prophetess, and she was in a position of leadership and teaching within the church. Very serious. If Jezebel is not her real name, is it symbolic? Well, if it is symbolic... I think we only need, again, go to the Old Testament to find out about the real Jezebel that's described in the Old Testament. Jezebel in the Old Testament was the wife of Ahab, king of Israel. She was a daughter of a Sidonian king, so she was a Gentile. She was educated in the idolatrous practices of her native country, 
And she introduced the worship of Baal and other idols into the nation of Israel. She maintained 400 priests of Asherah at her own expense, while her husband maintained 450 priests of Baal. So she even had her own priests that she hired, 450 of them. She also, as, we, as you go through the story of her life, she planned and perpetrated the murder of Naboth just to get his vineyard by using the king's name and authority. How she did it was she arranged two men to bear false witness against this innocent man. They accused him and they stoned him to death. And then she ended up giving, getting, they ended up getting the vineyard that was belonged to him. And Ahab was the official king of Israel. But he permitted, he allowed, he did not hinder his wife. She was really the virtual ruler of Israel. He was more or less a figurehead. She was the virtual ruler. She pulled the strings. Well, it's interesting. There was a temple at Thyatira, Thyatira that was dedicated to this god named Sambethi or Sam, Sambatha. And at this shrine, there was a prophetess. And she uttered sayings that this deity would impart to the worshipers. And with this amalgamation of all these different religions in Thyatira, it's possible that this particular false prophet to the shrine of Sambatha was allowed to teach in the church of Thyatira. It might have been that very same person. And she was encouraging the blending of idolatrous worship. Hey, you can be a part of those trade guilds. You, you, you can do that and be a Christian. That's, that's okay. You, you can do both, man. There's, there's, you know, it's okay. We're affirming, we're accepting everything. This may have been who Jesus was referring to. And like Jezebel's husband in the Old Testament, he was weak. He did nothing to stop her from leading and influencing the nation of Israel. And so the leadership of this church of Thyatira did nothing to stop this false prophetess from leading and influencing the church into idolatry. You know, we've had people that have come to the church before and, you know, they're new. I don't know them very well. And, and, and I've had people say, you know, I'd, I'd love to teach a Bible study or I'd like to do this or that. And, and you know, it's like, man, that's, that's, that's awesome. Um, why don't you stick around for a while? You know, I, I kind of want to get to know you a little bit because I'm responsible for this church. And if I just say somebody just comes in and goes, hey, why don't you lead a Bible study? And they're teaching some off the wall stuff that's 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 bad doctrine, I'm responsible for that as the shepherd of this church. And so, you know, and that's the problem with this church. They allowed this, this false prophetess to come in and teach. And we're told in 1 John 4, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. There are false prophets out there today and false prophetesses. Paul wrote to Timothy, chapter 5, verse 22 of 1 Timothy. He says, Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. And so how do you do that? Well, in chapter 5, verse, or excuse me, later on, or actually earlier, he says regarding the appointing of elders and deacons, he says, Let, them, let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. So if a new person comes to church and they're like, yeah, I'd really like to, to lead a Bible study, and I've had people say that, I go, yeah, that's cool. Why don't you stick around for a while? And I'll watch them, and I'll pray, and I'll say, Lord, what, what about this person? And, and, you know, we'll go from there. That's the wise thing to do. They didn't do that here in Thyatira. 
And what's also interesting, verse 21, Jesus says, And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. So evidently this Jezebel was made aware of her sin and given time to repent, which she refused. And it doesn't mean that she was misguided, you know, and she was well-meant but misguided, you know, she was just off in her teaching. No, she was warned about her teaching and shown that it was false, and yet she refused to repent of it. So in addition to being a false prophetess, she was knowingly in rebellion. Being in rebellion to the Lord and to those who's placed over us in positions of spiritual authority, man, that's, that's a serious thing. In fact, um, well, I'll get to that in a minute. I don't know if you ever come across people. We've had people that blown blown in and out of this church before. And, and uh, you know, sometimes as you get to know them, you realize, man, they're not submitted to anybody. They're not submitted to a church. They won't, they won't submit to a, a pastor or a, or a church body or other believers. They're on their own, you know. I only take my orders from Jesus. And they, they just, they're just doing their own thing. And no one can tell them what to do. And if someone attempts to, they stubbornly ignore or rebuff it. And I've come across people like that. You probably have too. But listen, rebellion is a ser- serious thing, even for believers. First Samuel fifteen twenty three it says, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is an, as iniquity and idolatry. So this woman, she was, she was warned. She was given time to repent. She refused to. So she was in rebellion. So what's Christ's message to the church of Thyatira? Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, verse 22, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. See, she was guilty of seducing the the church of Thyatira to participate in sexual as well as spiritual adultery. And the ancient Greek word here for sickbed, it's also the word for a banquet. And that word bed is also can be translated banqueting couch. And this is what Barclay says. He's a commentary. He says, if that meaning is taken, the meaning is, I will strike her down as she sits at her forbidden feasts. God wouldn't allow that to continue. She says, I will throw, uh, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. The words great tribulation, that's described earlier in Matthew. Jesus mentions in chapter 24, verse 21, the end of the age, the great tribulation following the rapture of the church. And we're going to discuss that when we get to chapter 4. So uh, hang on there. We'll get, we'll get to that later on. Her children, well, who are her children? It was those who adopted the practices that this Jezebel was promoting. That's the children. He says, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. This really ties in with how Jesus reveals himself to the church of Thyatira, right? The Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. In fact, it's almost identical to how Jesus described, the Lord described himself to Jeremiah. You don't have to turn there, but Jeremiah 17, verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. 
The Lord's watching you and I. He's, he, he has his eye on us as a church and on us as an individuals. In fact, in Hebrews 14, uh, excuse me, 4 verse 13, it says, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of whom, to whom we must give an account. He sees everything that's going on in our lives. Verse 24. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. You see, the leadership in the church had allowed this woman in, and she was doing this false teaching. And But there were those that were not part of that. They were, they were, they were in this church, they were in this system, but they were, they were still loving Jesus. They were still worshiping the Lord. They hadn't compromised. The leadership had. They hadn't. And to those that were in this church, he says, I'm not going to put any other burdens on you. Just hold fast to what you have. Just hang on there. Hang on there. There were those in the church that didn't follow those false teachings. And he says, I'm not going to put any further burden on you. Hang in there. Hold on to what you have. And then there's the promise to the individual overcomer. Verse 26, he who overcomes and keeps my words until the end, works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, and they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my father. He says, he who overcomes and keeps my works. What works are you and I to keep? We're, we're New Testament Christians, right? I thought it was, we're saved by faith, so what kind of works are we to keep? John asked Jesus that in John chapter 6, verse 28 and 29. He says, what shall we do that we may uh, work the works of God? In verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Just believe in him. And of course, believing in him means that you're trusting in him. You're trusting in him for your salvation. You're no longer going through the motions trying to please God. I'll just go to church and I'll please God. No, no, no. God loves you. He sent his son to die for you. All he wants you to do is to believe in your heart that Jesus died for your sins and that he rose again and to make him the Lord of your life. Because that's, you know, if I believe that a chair is going to hold me up, I can say I believe in a chair, but it doesn't mean anything until I actually put my trust in the chair and I sit on it because I believe it's going to hold me up. If you believe that Jesus is your Savior, then Submit your life to him. Surrender your life to him and make him the Lord of your life. He says to him, I will give power over the nations. That's alluded to in Daniel 7 verse 22 when the saints possess the kingdom. And then he says, he shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. This is a quotation. It's quoted from Psalm 2 verses 8 and nine, and it speaks of the, it's a messianic psalm, and it speaks of the authority of the Messiah when He rules over the over the earth. And, and if you tie all these things in, it seems to be Jesus is talking about the great tribulation and then the millennium, uh, following the great tribulation, where Jesus will reign and rule physically on the earth for a thousand years, where it's known as the millennium. And you and I, saints, are going to reign with Him for a thousand years as well. Now, for some, this is new news. It's like, I never heard that before. Or for some of you, you're like, you know, I'm not sure if I believe in a, in a literal thousand-year reign. Uh, you know, I know there's people that have different es eschatological beliefs. Well, if you're unsure about this, just hang in there, okay? We're not going to get to it today, 
But when we get to it in Scripture here in Revelation, I'm going to do my best to support uh, the belief that I'm sharing with you. I'll try to back it up as best I can with Scripture, and, and, and I'll, then I'll leave it to you to decide. And so to the overcomer who is not cast into the great tribulation, they'll give him power to rule over the nations. And interestingly, Paul alludes to this in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 3. You know, the Corinthians, they were suing one another. They were not getting along in the church. There was factions and divisions in the church. And, and, and Paul was just grieved by the fact that believers were taking other believers to court and suing them. And so in chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Then he says this, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Uh, This is speaking, I believe, of the millennium. And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? And then he says this, verse 3, Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? I think Paul is alluding to that thousand-year reign of Christ. That again, we'll get to it when we get to it in Revelation. Then he also says this, and to the overcomer, Jesus is also going to give the morning star. What's the morning star? You don't have to go too far. Just get to the end of book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 16. Jesus is finishing up this letter, the, 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 the book, and he says, I, Jesus have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. So what's Jesus saying here? Not only are the saints going to receive a kingdom, a better than that, they're going to receive the presence of Jesus Christ themselves. They're going to be rewarded with being in the presence of the Lord Jesus. That's the best thing about heaven. What's the admonition to the individual? He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's repeated, by the way, every letter. Why? Because there's application for each one of us in all these letters. There's something that the Spirit wants to say to the church, to you and I as well. So I'm going to close with this. Just some uh, rhetorical questions here. You can just reflect on it, and then we'll close. First of all, are we like those in the church of Pergamos? Do we compromise our faith, and our walk? Are we willing to compromise for the sake of financial benefit? And sometimes that's a big temptation. Uh, you know, the, the, the ramifications of not cheating are so great, and then so there's a temptation of cheating. And it, I mean, it may be taxes, it may be some other way, maybe in your, in your business, how you conduct your business. Do we compromise through ungodly relationships? Again, we're to be salt and light in the world. But those relationships are not to take the place of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. If they stand in the way, anything that stands in the way of your relationship with Jesus is an idol. So do we compromise through ungodly relationships? Do we hate what Jesus hates? And by the way, Jesus doesn't hate anybody. There's no one person. There's no Jesus doesn't hate ISIS. Jesus doesn't hate Osama bin Laden. You know, Jesus doesn't hate Hillary Clinton. I mean, Jesus doesn't hate these people, but she hates. He hates the deeds, the sinful deeds. So when I say, do we hate who Jesus hates? It's not we're hating anybody, but we're hating sin. And you know what breaks my heart is sometimes you look at these people and you go, man, they are so deceived by the enemy, and and it breaks your heart to see what how the enemy has lied to them, 
and that they're bound to hell because they're they're heading to hell because because they've believed in the lie and they followed the lie. And I hate what sin does. I've dealt with enough broken families and marriages, and I hate what sin does. I really do. I hate what sin does to people's lives. Do we hate what Jesus hates? And the flip side of this: Do we love what Jesus loves? Finally, have we assimilated to our culture so much that people can't tell the difference between us and themselves? Do people look at you and go, man, I, I didn't know you were, I couldn't have told you were a Christian. Man, there's no way, I can't, wow, you must be a secret agent for Jesus. Man, I couldn't tell. By the way, I, I used to live my life that way. There was a time in my life where I was a secret agent for the Lord. I didn't want anybody to know as a Christian. Why? Because I was participating in the same thing that everyone in the world was doing. And then if they, if they caught me, I'd be, they'd, I'd be outed as a hypocrite because I was. So yeah, we participate. We're in the world, but we're not to be of the world. And hopefully, you know, and I'm not saying don't go to the Christmas party. You're, you know, you're, you're a hypocrite, backstabbing, compromiser if you go to your Christmas party. I'm not saying that at all, okay? I've gone to Christmas parties before. But just use discernment. Use discernment. And realize people are watching you. Are you going to just respond just the same way they do? Or, or is there really a difference? Because people want to know what works in this life. Everybody's looking for the answer. What's the answer? And you and, I, you and I, we go, well, we got the answer. The answer is Jesus. And they go, oh, really? Well, how does that, how does that impact your life? How can I see it in your life? If, if you really believe that, does it, does it reflect? So it's so important for us. People are watching us. And then finally, actually there's two more. Are we submitted to the Lord and to those he has placed in authority over us? Or are you just a lone ranger for Jesus? Man, nobody's going to tell me what to do. I don't need to be submitted to anybody. I just got my Bible, and I pray, and that's it. I'm good. Or, you, you know, Jesus has placed us in a body. He's given us spiritual, authority, spiritual leadership. And it's a heavy, it's a heavy burden, but it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's an important thing. But God's given us leadership. And he's given us one another. We're to be submitted to one another as the body of Christ. So are you submitted to the Lord and to those he has placed in authority over you? And finally, are we keeping the works of God until the end? What are the works again? Faith in Christ Jesus. Hanging in there. Maintaining your faith. Relying strictly on your faith and nothing else. Because that's all that matters. Why don't you stand up? Luke, you want to come on up? Or whoever, the worship team? And let's go Lord in prayer. Luke's going to close us out, or the worship team is going to close us out, excuse me, uh, with a couple of songs. At the end of those songs, if you need prayer, um, we'll have a couple, do you mind going back? We'll have a couple people in the back that will be available for prayer. So if you want to respond, again, you know, like this, each one of these letters, you know, if you have ears, I've got two of them. Let's hear what the Spirit says to the churches, Okay. So if you need to respond, if there's something you want to pray for, we'd love to pray with you for that. So let's go, Lord, in prayer, and then they'll open us up with the word. They'll do the worship. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I I thank you for the letters that you've written to both Pergamum and Thyatira. And Lord, those are serious letters. But Lord, I pray that uh, we would be sensitive to what your spirit is saying to us this morning. Lord, I pray that... uh, Lord, we would just respond in obedience to your spirit this morning. We thank you and we love you, Lord, in Jesus' name.